Welcome to Move Forward Radio, a show featuring interviews with physical therapists and other healthcare experts. This program is brought to you by MoveForwardPT.com, the official consumer information website of the American Physical Therapy Association. Learn how physical therapists can help people of all ages and abilities reduce pain and improve and restore motion to achieve long-term quality of life at MoveForwardPT.com. Welcome to Move Forward Radio, I'm Jason Bellamy. Lumbar spinal stenosis is a narrowing within the vertebrae of the spinal column that results in pressure on the spinal cord. That might sound like a serious problem in need of an invasive medical procedure, and indeed in some cases surgery is necessary to alleviate the symptoms. But a new study published in the April 2015 issue of the Annals of Internal Medicine suggests that surgery should be considered only when other more conservative treatments fail. The study, composed of more than 150 patients, all at least 50 years of age, found that physical therapy alone for lumbar spinal stenosis was equally effective to surgery. That's an important finding, considering that surgery comes with a 15% complication rate and a higher total cost, and given that the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons estimates that 2.4 million Americans may have lumbar spinal stenosis by 2021. In this episode, we'll talk to one of the authors of the study, physical therapist Anthony Delito of the School of Health and Rehabilitation Sciences at the University of Pittsburgh about treatment of lumbar spinal stenosis and what patients need to know. Here's our interview with Tony Delito. Tony, I want to talk to you about the results of the study soon, but before we get to that, let's start with the basics. Lumbar spinal stenosis, what is it? What are we talking about? Okay, in the lumbar spine, there's the canal in the spine that the nerve roots pass through, and in the canal, as we get older, because of degenerative changes in the spine, those canals can narrow. So the stenosis itself is an anatomical narrowing of those passageways where the nerves travel through. That's technically what lumbar stenosis is. Now, lumbar stenosis happens to all of us as we get older. It becomes symptomatic when there's pressure on those nerves and then patients will complain of pain and sometimes uh, numbness and tingling down the legs. And the classic sign for lumbar stenosis is pain in the legs, walking intolerance. The patient will walk, they'll get this claudicating or cramping type pain in their legs. They sit down and the pain immediately goes away. And then they can wait a little while, they get up again and they start walking and the same thing happens again. You know, they just get a walking intolerance. So the short answer to this question is, you know, lumbar stenosis is an anatomical narrowing of that canal and it becomes symptomatic when there's pressure on those nerve roots and it manifests itself with the patient not being able to walk due to pain in the legs. And so just to sort of reinforce a point or clarify something, this is different than garden variety low back pain, if you will. Yes, it is. It's different than mechanical low back pain, which is the kind of wrenching pain that you get when you bend over or do too much yard work or something like that. And that's episodic, and most of the time that pain resolves uh, either with a therapist or without a therapist. It resolves on its own. And this is a condition that manifests itself when people are older, usually in the fifth and sixth decade. And many times, unlike back pain, lumbar stenosis can come on without much back pain. The primary complaints are typically in the lower extremities. So someone comes in, they meet with their medical professional, maybe that's a physical therapist, maybe that's a physician, they get diagnosed with spinal stenosis. At that point, kind of what's the range of treatments that might be suggested to someone? Well, the first thing to do is to try to characterize the relevance of the stenosis. So as I said before, patients, as they get older, 
their spines become stenotic or they have stenosis in the spine. And sometimes that stenosis is causing the problems in the legs. And sometimes the leg pain is caused by something else like hip arthritis or something like that. So one of the first things to do is to try to characterize the patient's presentation and see if it corroborates the diagnosis of stenosis. And one of the ways of doing that is to do examination of the lower extremity, examination of the hip, examination of the knees to make sure that you try to narrow it down, make sure if it's coming from the hip, you treat the hip, in which case, you know, the lumbar stenosis is an anatomical finding. It really isn't relevant to the patient's situation. But if it is relevant at that point, what might be, and if it is diagnosed as lumbar spinal stenosis, at that point, what might be recommended for treatment? So there's a number of things. The treatment that we used at the time of the study was flexion-oriented activities, so activities where the patient is either on their back, bringing their knees to the chest, uh, sitting in a chair, bending forward, some manual therapy techniques to the spine that encourage flexion of the spine. The biggest thing is to instruct the patients that a flexed spine can sometimes modulate the symptoms to the point where the problem is much more tolerable to the patient and they can get on in life with it. And so not every patient is the same, obviously, but how intense, I guess is what I want to say, is that physical therapy program? So I come in with these problems, maybe my legs are tingling, I've got this discomfort, this problem with walking. How much physical therapy is likely for me to have to go through to start seeing some positive results? We were able to do this two times a week for six weeks, and in general, patients who were responsive were responsive almost immediately. The idea of the exercise program as well as the educating the patient with regard to postures and things like that, the idea was to get the exercise program taught to the patient so that they could use these postures and exercises to modulate the symptoms on their own. So it was more like a, an educational program so that the patient learned to treat themselves. And generally, we were able to teach patients pretty much all they needed to know in the first uh, six visits. So I want to get into more detail about sort of the success of that physical therapy program. But first, to kind of set that up, one of the other things that is recommended sometimes for spinal stenosis is surgery, correct? And what is the thought process behind that prescription? First of all, it's uh, tax the problem as people see it right from the start. So stenosis is a narrowing of the canal, the surgery is done specifically to increase the size of the canal. So usually the idea is to decompress the area, uh, remove some of the bone as well as soft tissue and disc material from the frame as well as the central canal and decompress the area. So the idea is go in, decompress the area, and the problem should be solved. And then how invasive is that? That sounds fairly invasive to me. It is invasive. It's a surgery. It comes with the complications of surgery. Don't forget that the surgery is generally done on older people, so we're talking about a 10 to 15% complication rate. About half of those complications are life-threatening, so it isn't uh, something to sneeze at. It's a significant risk. So then that brings us to the study. So describe the study for me and what you found. We decided to compare physical therapy to surgery and we were fully aware of previous studies that had been done where comparison between surgical and non-surgical treatments were done with patients who had lumbar spinal stenosis. And one of the problems of previous studies was a high crossover rate. That is, patients who were diagnosed with lumbar stenosis would be randomized to either a surgical arm or a non-surgical arm. And what happened was the patients in the surgical arm, some got surgery, but you couldn't force people to get surgery. So a lot of patients didn't get surgery. You know, when somebody decides not to get the treatment that's assigned to that arm of the trial, that's called a crossover. And the same thing would happen in the non-surgical arm. You would assign people to a non-surgical arm. You really couldn't stop patients from crossing over and getting surgery. 
And when you have a large crossover rate in both arms of the trial, then you lose the effect of randomization, which is very important in a trial. So what we did in our trial to try to address that is we waited until patients were not only considered candidates for surgery, but they also consented to surgery. And then we sought consent. And with that in mind, if the patient had already consented to surgery and then were randomized to surgery, we thought that there'd be much less crossover rate in that arm of the trial. And we were right. Hardly anyone crossed over from the surgical arm once they were assigned to that arm. However, we did have a high crossover rate with the physical therapy arm of the trial. And in fact, our primary outcome was at two years. And a little over half of the patients uh, crossed over from physical therapy to surgery in that two-year period that were originally assigned to the physical therapy arm of the trial. Do you have any thoughts on why people cross over in that direction? Yeah, so our original thought was that people would cross over because they didn't feel as though they were getting better adequately or maybe even were getting worse. But we were also getting a lot of feedback from patients that were related to, for example, copays. So that was a big problem for us. Patients had copayments, and the copayments were due each time the patient would go to a physical therapy treatment. In some uh, instances, patients didn't even go to the first visit. Once they found out about copays, they just crossed over to the surgical arm. And the comments that patients were making to us was, my surgeon says I need surgery. This is costing me you know, $25 a visit. I think I'm just going to go over and get surgery. And of course, we didn't stop them from doing that. Those were a couple of issues. The original intent was that patients would cross over based on the fact that there wasn't a perceived effectiveness of the physical therapy arm, but we also found that pragmatically people crossed over because, to be honest with you, the out-of-pocket expense for physical therapy for the patient was higher than it was for surgery. So there's also that thought always with surgery that, okay, I'm just going to get this fixed rather than going through some rigorous process where I kind of gradually improve. I'm just going to get this kind of quick fix, microwave the problem, if you will. But wouldn't people who go through that surgery probably benefit from physical therapy after the surgery anyway? So, I mean, is this the long way around to getting different physical therapy? If I'm hearing your question right, I think clearly people do want a quick fix. There's no question about it. And we do see patients who have that tendency. However, we also see patients that are fearful of surgery. Many patients will come to us and want to avoid surgery at all costs. So I think you see that you see a whole gamut of people with regard to their attitudes towards surgery. However, if it's accurate, what the patients more times than not are after is an accurate prognosis, whether they have surgery or not. And I think what people want to know is, if I have surgery, what's the likelihood of getting better and what are the risks? And if I don't have surgery and go to physical therapy, what's the likelihood of getting better and what are the risks? Those become the facts that are of paramount importance to patients when they're making this decision. And that's great. And then the other part of that, though, is is somebody who does elect for surgery for spinal stenosis, would they benefit from physical therapy after that? I can tell you very clearly that a proportion of patients who did have surgery did have physical therapy after the surgery. In general, those are patients that did not do well initially with surgery. So usually we don't see physicians prescribing physical therapy after surgery unless the patient's not achieving their goals or unless the patient is just not thriving after surgery. So let's go back then to your study. So you have these groups, you split them apart effectively, and then what did you learn about the outcomes, about the effectiveness of these two tracks? So no matter how we analyze the outcomes, the two-year outcome were identical in both groups. So when we did an intention-to-treat analysis, which is the most credible analysis that you can do with a randomized trial, the physical therapy and the surgical arms of the trial were equivalent. When we did 
as treated analyses. In other words, when we looked at three groups, one group was the surgical group, the other group was the physical therapy group that crossed over to surgery, and then the third group was the physical therapy group that stayed in physical therapy. The outcome of those three groups were equivalent across at the two-year outcome. And so here you have basically one is as effective as the other. I want to go back to that cost perspective. You mentioned patients sort of seeing what their copay would be and deciding, okay, I'm not even going to do that. The out-of-pocket costs, obviously, from person to person can be different depending on their insurance plans, all of that. Nevertheless, wouldn't the surgery track for the whole healthcare system be more costly than the physical therapy track, or is that an incorrect assumption? Oh, no, that's correct assumption. We estimate the costs of simple decompression surgery to be in the neighborhood of twenty dollars to $25,000, and the cost of a physical therapy regimen in a fee-for-service Medicare world would be in around $1,400. So there's a huge difference in cost between the physical therapy and surgical arm, as one would expect. So there might be other reasons, but is there a reason surgery is overprescribed in these situations? The biggest reason, I think, is patients do not exhaust their non-surgical options. Even though surgeons, as well as physical therapists, as well as internal medicine, almost anyone would probably tell you that patients should exhaust their non-surgical options before considering surgery. What our study clearly showed is that patients do not exhaust their non-surgical options, and they certainly don't exhaust the physical therapy as a non-surgical option. So, you know, again, forced people to do when they were randomized to the non-surgical side was have a bona fide physical therapy regimen. And when you do that, even though a little over half of the people crossed over, you have to keep in mind that you know almost half of the people remain surgery-free at two years, and these were people that had consented to surgery and in all likelihood would have had surgery without the study. So when you think about that, I think the clear indication there is that people do not exhaust their non-surgical options it strongly indicates that people should at least try a regimen of physical therapy and fail before they consent to surgery. Walking through that scenario, I mean, is it as simple as the patient asking if that's an option? Because, you know, I can imagine myself meeting with my physician, I hear surgery is a possibility or surgery would fix this. That to me might sound like, okay, well, that's what I'm going to do. My doctor's put the surgery word on the table. Is it as simple as saying, hey, would physical therapy possibly make this better? Can I try that? Is that what patients need to do? I think what patients need to do is go back to my original discussion in terms of the decision process. What's the likelihood of success with surgery and what are the risks? And what's the likelihood of success with physical therapy and what are the risks? And I think what our study is showing is that the likelihood of success is equivalent in both groups. And the risks are much greater with surgery than they are with physical therapy. So obviously, a first line of defense here should strongly indicate a physical therapy regimen before considering the surgical option. Now, failing the physical therapy, I think you're looking at a decision where surgery is probably going to be a little more justified because you've now failed the non-surgical option, a best foot forward non-surgically, and, you know, surgery becomes, you know, more on the front burner, I think. So is there any way to prevent spinal stenosis or is this sort of inevitable and it's going to hit somebody harder than somebody else? There's no way that people know right now to prevent spinal stenosis. It's a secondary degenerative process of the lumbar spine. It's caused by, you know, degenerative changes in the articular joints. It's caused by degenerative disc disease and sometimes disc protrusions and things like that. These are all part of the degenerative process of getting older. And clearly what happens as people get older is the spinal foramen do narrow. The question is, in some, it narrows more than others. Of course, there's people that are studying congenital stenosis. 
there are some people out there that start out with a smaller foramen. Of course, these degenerative changes then would have a greater impact as one gets older on somebody who's starting out with a smaller foramen. So there's all sorts of ideas that people look at, but I think we can all safely assume that degenerative changes are part of the aging process and spinal stenosis goes along with those degenerative changes. I think what we're obligated to do as healthcare practitioners is try to really assure that the patient's symptoms corroborate a diagnosis of lumbar spinal stenosis. In other words, the symptoms ought to be highly related to those classic signs and symptoms that we see in people with lumbar stenosis. So I think, again, looking from the standpoint of the neurogenic claudication, for example, it sounds simple. The pain hurts. It's a claudicating pain in the legs, and when the patient sits down, the pain goes right away. It sounds very simple, but don't forget, if you put yourself in the typical surgeon's office where you see they're pressed for time, it's very, very difficult to get an accurate picture from the patient about exactly when that pain comes on, when it comes on, when they walk, and you know the temporal time frame of when it comes on, and when they sit down, it goes away. And then also, is it claudicating pain, or is it the same kind of pain that one gets with hip arthritis, which has the same sort of prevalence as people get older? It's another degenerative process, and when somebody has hip arthritis, they can also complain of leg pain when they walk. So I think these are it's a difficult diagnosis. It's not an easy diagnosis to corroborate, but I think physical therapists are kind of in a unique position to do this because they spend a lot more time with patients. They can actually have a patient walk on a treadmill, for example, and better assess the relationship that the pain that the patients are feeling to the kinds of classic signs we see with lumbar stenosis. So you learned great things from this study. What's the thing you don't know that you wish you did? What would be the next thing if the research could go a little farther? What predicts success with surgery and what predicts failure? And what predicts success with physical therapy and what predicts failure? We did a large number of tests on patients before they entered the study, and none of those tests were really were helpful from the standpoint of predicting success and failure but in both arms of the trial. One of the things we did realize in the surgical arm of the trial, it looked like women didn't do as well as men. You know, with uh, surgery, the interpretation specifically was that men and women both improved initially, and then men continued to improve over the two-year period, and women kind of flattened out. and They sort of didn't thrive in that two-year period. And when you looked at the differences between the two, there was a clear difference between the functional improvement in men versus women. So we'd like to delve into that a little bit more and see what might be the reasons for women not doing as well with surgery. And, of course, we'd sure like to know the real specific reasons why patients crossed over. Did they cross over because they weren't getting better, or did they cross over just simply because of other logistical issues that they couldn't adhere to the treatment that was prescribed to them, for example, because of co-pays or things like that? Tony Delito, thank you so much. You're welcome. To learn more about lumbar spinal stenosis and other back conditions that can be effectively treated with physical therapy, visit the Health Center for Low Back Pain at MoveForwardPT.com. I'm Jason Bellamy. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to Move Forward Radio. Insight from our guest is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for individual treatment by a medical professional. Learn more about how a physical therapist can help you and find a physical therapist in your area at moveforwardpt.com. For an archive of past episodes, visit moveforwardpt.com radio.